Good morning. Uh, welcome to Hope Community Church. I'm Pastor Trevor. I'm glad you could join us this morning. Um, if you are interested in um, attending the membership class and you did not respond um, to any of my emails or told me that you're going to be there, uh, please feel free to still attend. Also, if you are just curious about membership or how we as a church fit into the denomination, um, please attend, ask questions. Attending the class does not obligate you in any way uh, to follow through and become um, a member. Also, along the same line, if you are interested in being baptized, uh, please uh, let me know. Um, that way we can get baptisms uh, scheduled for this summer. Before we begin our message, let's go to our Father in Heaven in prayer. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for allowing us to gather here this morning. Uh, thank you for the week that we have had. Thank you for the weeks to come. We ask this morning that we would hear your word, hear your voice, that your spirit would lead us, that your spirit would convict, encourage, mold, and shape as necessary, um, and that through this, Father, that we would be edified, equipped, sanctified, so that we would glorify you um, in all that we do, uh, wherever you may take us, and whatever you may put before us to do, Father. Help us to be faithful in all things, and we ask these things, Father, for your glory, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have not already, please open up to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, the Bibles, if you need a Bible, we have Bibles underneath the seats around you. The passage will be on the screen as well. Um, and our passage this morning is the end of chapter 11, verses 32 through uh, 40. So we are at the end of this uh, popular chapter in Hebrews, and we are perhaps at the crescendo of the letter um, as we get especially as we get into chapter 12 all that the author has saying he is wrapping up and he is going to reiterate some key points especially in chapter 12 but everything that's said in chapter 12 is based off of chapter 11 so this morning we will look at the final examples uh, that the author uh, gives us this morning in, his, uh, in this Hall of Faith chapter. Uh, we won't look at these examples uh, with as much detail or as much examination as we have done with the previous examples because the previous examples, each one were very specific, very intentional uh, by the author. They each had their own purpose uh, to, and their own role to play in the author's arguments, but today uh, the author's purpose is more or less to focus on a generic group of examples to reiterate the point that he has been uh, trying to make uh, this whole uh, chapter since verses 1 and 2. So we will look at these examples, then we will consider the outcome of their faith, the ultimate outcome of their faith, and then our role in that outcome as the author connects it and then, of course, we will consider, well, what does this mean for us today? How do we apply that truth to us today? So we will begin with the examples listed in verses 32 through 38. And we will read those verses, talk about them, and then we will deal with the final two. So Hebrews 11, verse 32 through 38. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Chepta, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, 
escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. So the author gets to verse 32 after talking about essentially Ahab from Ahab to Rahab, Ahab, excuse me, Abel and Rahab. I apologize to Abel for associating him with Ahab. Abel to Rahab. And he goes, what more shall I say? In other words, what else is there to say? What else do you want to hear? Is not what I have listed, is not what I have given you enough? Do you actually need more? Because the list goes on and on. In fact, if we were to keep going on with the list, we wouldn't have time to cover it. And, and at this point, a lot of some have argued this is why they think it's a, it's, it's a sermon, because the author is literally saying, we don't have time to cover these examples. So he could mean it literally, or he could just be using it as an expression. The examples go on. The, the, the list itself actually never really ends, if we're honest. It's like a never-ending info, infomercial, hence the, the title of the sermon. But it is, of course, much more than an infomercial. By this point in the chapter, the examples given, they should be enough. The point has already been made, and to go on would only be to repeat the point. There's only so much papyrus that the author can write on, and so space is limited. However, even though the author says, what, what else could I say? What more could I say? Well, he, he actually does say a little bit more. He does give us a few more examples. And he begins very specifically by naming six examples. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Cheptah, David, and Samuel. The first four of those we read about in the book of Judges. The last two we read about in Samuel and Kings. Four of them were judges, two were not. And this list that he gives us, um, it's not a chronological order. Up until this point, every example was in perfect chronological order order but now they're not it's almost as if he was just thinking of these examples off the top of his head and he listed them as they came to his mind chronologically speaking barack who actually isn't a judge he comes first he actually comes before gideon and barack comes in judges chapters four and five and that's around 1209 bc Gideon, he then comes in at Judges 6, around 1162 B.C. Jephthah, he's in Judges 11 and 12, around 1078 B.C. Uh, Samson, he is right after Jephthah in Judges 13 through 16. Um, and he lived during the same time as Jephthah, so the judges sometimes overlap one another. And Samson, as many of you might know, he destroyed the Philistine temple in 1055 B.C. Samuel, of course, he precedes David. And Samuel was the last judge of Israel before the kingship of Saul. Samuel was born in 1105 B.C., uh, so judges in 1 Samuel overlap in history. Samuel was a judge during the time of Samson and Jephthah. David then comes on the scene in 1 Samuel 16 around 1035-1030 B.C., and he's anointed king in 1025 B.C. 
Now, the author's audience, they're very well familiar with these men. Uh, they, they know the details, just as they know, knew the details behind the other examples, just being good, faithful Jews. Uh, but for us today, some of these names, for some of you, you might not have heard, or you might have heard, but you're not quite sure what uh, they are connected with. So uh, let's do a very quick review of these examples. Um, now, I'm not going to tell you, like, the purpose of, of each of these, like, um, theologically speaking, what's the role and place of them in Judges, uh, possibly after Hebrews, I might be preaching on Judges. I'm leaning that way. It's not, I'm not committed on Judges yet. Uh, so if I do, we'll get into the nitty-gritty uh, then. But for now, I just want to give you uh, the highlights. Uh, for Gideon, who's also known as uh, Jerubbabel, is uh, written, um, he's recorded in Judges 6, and he is the timid, weak man, almost cowardly-like man that God calls to lead his people against the Midianites' army. And so with 300 men, Gideon defeats the, the Midianites' army. Then Barak, who is not a judge, at least Scripture doesn't call him a judge, uh, he's actually associated with a judge, Deborah, um, in Judges 4 through 5. It was Deborah who sought Barak out to lead the people of Israel against Jabin, the king of Canaan. Uh, specifically against his commanding officer, the general Sisera. And since Barak was unwilling to go into battle without Deborah, and Deborah had to go with him, Deborah tells him, all right, well, you're not going to get credit. I'll go with you, but you're not going to get credit with slaying Sisera. That will go to a woman. And that woman was Jael. And Jael was able to slay Sisera by uh, driving a tent peg into the ground by first going through his skull. And then Samson is perhaps uh, the most well-known judge uh, out of the list, right? Even many non-believers know who Samson is. He's the one with the long Fabio-like flowing hair. Uh, he has strength unlike any other, but he had an issue with lust. And thus Delilah was his downfall. He was betrayed. He was deceived. The Philistines find out his weakness. They cut his hair. They put out his eyes, make him a slave. And then one day when the Philistines are um, celebrating the capture of Samson in the temple of Dagon. They bring Samson there, and Samson, with his final breath, final words, asks Yahweh once again to give him strength to take out the temple, uh, which, which, you know, a lot causes his own loss of life, but also kills all the Philistines in the temple as well. And we read about that in Judges 16. And then we have Jephthah. Jephthah in Judges 11 uh, he was a, a man who led the Israelites to battle over the Ammonites. However, in doing so, he made a very foolish vow, a, a vow that led to the sacrifice of his young uh, virgin uh, daughter. And then we have Samuel and David. Samuel was the son of the great Hannah. He was raised in the house of Yahweh under the priest Eli. You can read about that first Samuel 1 and 2. Uh, Samuel was God's voice and judge to Israel when Israel transitioned from the period of judges to the period of kings. Now, uh, for those of you who are relatively new, we preached on Samuel and kings uh, before uh, we came into Hebrews. Uh, so if you're curious about um, Samuel or, or, or David, uh, I would encourage you to go back on YouTube. They're categorized on playlists by book. You can find it there or you can find it on Spotify or the website. So by Samuel... Saul, the first king of Israel, was anointed. Also by Samuel, Saul was rejected. Uh, by Samuel, David was anointed as king. And then we have David, 
course, David is probably just as popular, if not more popular than Samson. David is the shepherd boy who slew Goliath with a stone, and then he reigned over Israel for 40 years. He was the man after God's own heart. So after the author mentions these six by name, the author then mentions the prophets. And now we, we need to understand uh, that just because he mentions six by name and then the prophets, it's not like he's talking about all the prophets and then just these six men. Essentially what he's doing here is we have these six, like he's just saying consider these six, but he's also saying consider these six along with anyone else that you can think of that's faithful. So he's essentially calling to mind all of those who lived during the time prior to the new covenant coming in. And so he mentions the prophets, and when we think of the prophets, I'm sure many names come to mind. Of course, the, the prophets of the Bible, like the books that we have, the major prophets, the minor prophets, right? Like Isaiah, um, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, Hosea, Amos, Obadiah, Joel, so forth. But we also have all the prophets that don't have books, prophets that either didn't write or we just don't have the collections. Think of Elijah and Elisha. You can think of Micaiah, you can think of Uriah, you can think of Hananiah, you can think of uh, many more, even the unnamed ones that we read about in Kings or Chronicles. So all of them are included in this mention at the end of verse 32. The author then goes on in verses 33 and 38 to speak of all that they did. And he does this again in a general sense. He doesn't connect it to anyone particularly because that's not his point. The point isn't to whom they're connected However, they are connected to some of these people. Uh, think of the first example. They conquered kingdoms, right? So the judges did just that. Gideon defeated the Midianites. Uh, Barak defeated the king of Canaan. Jephthah defeated the Ammonites. Samuel and David had their numerous military conquests in and conquering of nations. One could argue that Samson defeated the Philistines with his many battles and conflicts that he had with them. They enforced justice. The, the enforcing of justice and righteousness among God's people, that was the role of the judges. It was especially the role of the kings of Israel. You can just think of Solomon's request in uh, 1 Kings 3, 9. Right? Solomon has a vision of Yahweh, and Yahweh's like, Solomon, what do you want? Wealth, wisdom, what do you want? And he asks for wisdom, but he asks for wisdom for a specific reason. 1 Kings 3, 9, Solomon says, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind, that's wisdom, to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this great people. He wants the wisdom to exact and to enact justice and righteousness throughout the land. The faithful obtained promises. Now, these promises that the author lists here in 33 are not, it is not the promise of verse 39, right? It's the delineation here. When we get to 39, we're going to read that they did not receive the promise. Here, he says, but they obtained the promises. And he's speaking about the promises that relate to their um, individual callings and roles uh, as God had called them. Uh, and then, of course, David, as, as we read of David's account in Samuel Kings and through the Psalms, uh, he received many promises of different natures, some truly everlasting. The faithful stopped the mouths of lions. Uh, this one ought to call to mind a familiar um, event with one of the prophets, Daniel, right? Daniel and the lion's den. Daniel was thrown into the den, and by faith, the mouths of the lions were stopped. Uh, we could also include Samson in this, because in Judges 14, a lion comes after him, and Samson tears the lion apart with his bare hands. Then going on to verse 34, the faithful quenched the power of fire. 
Uh, this calls to mind the three friends of Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which we read about in Daniel 3. Uh, they refused by faith to bow down in worship to a golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar, so Nebuchadnezzar put them in a fiery furnace. But by faith, they were delivered. Others escaped the edge of sword and were made strong and out of weakness. They became mighty in war and they put armies to flight. So here we can think of, the again, the numerous military exploits found in the book of Judges or Samuel or Kings. But we can also think of Elijah. We can think of the prophets that escaped the sword. Think of um, Elijah who ran from the wrath of Jezebel in 1 Kings 19 and he then was strengthened by God. Or think of any of the prophets who happened to escape uh, threats of life. And there, in verse 35, the author expands his list by mentioning a woman who, who received their dead back by resurrection. Uh, we can just think of the women uh, that were dear to Elijah and Elijah, uh, both receiving their dead sons back. Elijah and Elisha both had one particular woman in their lives uh, that they cared for, and they both have uh, accounts to which they raised their dead sons back to life. Now, if you're curious about why they each have their account and their own similarities, uh, you can go back, listen to the sermon uh, that I did on 2 Kings 4, um, and it talks about why we have similarities and why we still believe it to be two different accounts and not the same account repeated. Elijah's account of that can be read in 1 Kings 17, and again, Elisha's is found in 2 Kings 4. The author then makes a turn in his list here in the middle of verse 35, because so far what he has mentioned, it's been positive. It's been good, right? People have experienced conquests, victories, deliverances, and blessings, and they've all done this by faith, but now the author goes the other way. He goes to the other side of the coin of faith. He shows the reality for, of life for one who is faithful. The, the side that the church today, especially in America, or a, a church in any blessed or prosperous society often ignores or sometimes outright denies that by faith, you can also have a hard uh, life full of suffering and full of pain. And so he makes this turn by talking of those who were tortured to death, right? All these other people by faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, and then, well, by faith, people were tortured to death. They refused to accept release. They refused to accept freedom by denying their faith or compromising their faith. The author here is most likely drawing from 2 Maccabees 6 and 7, but especially 2 Maccabees 7. And if you haven't read Maccabees, you ought to. Um, it, is, it is an apocrypha book. It doesn't have the weight of divine scripture, but a lot of it is historical. It, it's, it's a historical record. And, and so in 2 Maccabees 7, we read of, um, the Greeks trying to get their Jews to deny their faith and engage in Greek practices. And in 2 Maccabees 7, well, well in 6 and 7, you have numerous accounts of Jews not doing that and, and, and the suffering, the torture that the Greeks put upon them. But in 7, you read of a mother and her seven kids and, and their final words and the different types of torturing they underwent. Uh, one child was his skin was flayed, and he was put on a pan over a fire and, and essentially fried alive in the midst of it. And each of their accounts, their final words, all pertain to what the author is talking about here. They said, no, we're not going to turn our, our backs on our faith because though we die, a greater life awaits us. 
a resurrection awaits us. And we're looking forward to that. And when it gets to the younger, youngest child, the mother encourages the son, because the, 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 the Greek senator is like, encourage your son to deny the faith. You saw what happened to the other six, and what she speaks to him in the native tongue and tells him, don't, don't recant. You know, die faithfully, die like your brothers did, because I want you to be with us in the resurrection. So surely the author is, is pulling uh, from this account, pulling from this um, example, and his audience would have definitely been very familiar with um, this event. So the author then, he goes on um, in verse 36. He speaks of those who suffered mocking, uh, mocking flogging, and imprisonment. Uh, we see this with numerous prophets that God sent to the kings of Israel, uh, calling them to repentance and warning them of God's wrath, and then how the kings treated them. And, and don't miss that, right? God sent people to his own people, to the kings who were supposed to enforce justice, and who were the ones that mistreated God's people. It wasn't the pagans. It was God's people. We can specifically think of Jeremiah, who was beaten and put in stocks in Jeremiah 20, verse 2, as well as Jeremiah 37, 15. Or Hanani, who was imprisoned by King Asa in 2 Chronicles 16. Or Micaiah, who was imprisoned by King Ahab in 1 Kings 22. Then in verse 37, the outcomes of the faith, they continue on. Some were stoned, such as Zechariah in 2 Chronicles 24, and he was stoned because he rebuked the people of God. A tradition believes that Jeremiah was eventually stoned to death in Egypt. Some were stoned and others were sawed in two. And the author is quite possibly thinking of Isaiah here. Uh, there is a Jewish tradition found in the first century book, Ascension of Isaiah, that records that King Manasseh, uh, the evil king, of, and the son of the righteous king, Hezekiah, he had Isaiah tied in a sack, placed within a hollow tree trunk, and then had him sawn in two. Uh, the Talmud, uh, another ancient source, records Isaiah not being tied in a sack, but simply hiding in a cedar tree from King Manasseh, eventually being found and then being sawed in half while he was in uh, that tree. And yet the author continues to go on as if that wouldn't be enough. Some were stoned, some were sawed in two, others were simply killed with the sword, if one can be simply killed by the sword. We can think of the prophets of Yahweh that Jezebel uh, had cut down by the sword in uh, 1 Kings 18. Or in Jeremiah 26, we read of the prophet Uriah being killed by the sword. The author then wraps up his list by moving from outcomes of the faithful to how the faithful live. Right? They didn't wear comfortable clothing not all of them did. Now, he's not applying this to all of them. This is just some of them. Clearly, uh, Solomon, he was a king. He wore exquisite clothing. David had a mixed life. Some of the prophets did. Daniel surely wore some nice clothing um, at, at times. So this isn't like they all wore the same clothing, but some of them did not. Some of them um, wore animal skins. Think of Elijah, 2 Kings 1.8, or even John the Baptist. John the Baptist, would, he was an Old Testament prophet. He would be included in this example, and, and most likely the author is probably thinking of him a, as well. Uh, John the Baptist in Matthew 3.4 uh, is described as wearing the same type of garments that Elijah was. And as such, these prophets, these men of faith, many of them were poor, afflicted, and mistreated. Essentially, they were homeless. They were 
wandering about among the deserts and mountains as vagabonds. And why? Why did these people of the faith, why did they endure such pains, such sacrifices? Why were they willing to wander this earth like vagabonds, even though they were heralds and stewards of God's word? Why were they willing to live impoverished lives? Well, the author gives us two reasons in this list. The first reason is mentioned back in verse 35, uh, when, they, when he's talking about those who are tortured to death. They were looking towards a better life, a, a life that comes after death through the resurrection at the end of days. They, they saw and understood that compromising in this moment was not worth the risk because the glory that awaited them was far greater than the pain and suffering that they were enduring in that moment, even the most torturous, horrible way to die. This is why in verse 38 we get the second reason where the author states, of whom the world was not worthy. That is, there was and is nothing to be found in this world that was worth giving up their service, giving up their faithfulness to God. Now, some of them did enjoy the pleasures of the world. Some of them were blessed with that. Each of them were enjoyed what they were able to enjoy as God called them to. But none of them decided or thought that it was good to give up what God had called them to, faithfulness, for the pleasures of this world. Think of Moses who decided to take on the reproach of Christ and give up the fleeting pleasures of sin, the fleeting pleasures that the wealth and luxuries of Egypt could provide. It was better to be destitute, poor, and mistreated in this life while being faithful than not being faithful and enjoying the pleasures of this life and the luxuries of this world. So with that brief history all behind us, the author then closes this chapter by telling us what these faithful lives with the various outcomes in life what that ultimately resulted in so let's close out chapter 11 by reading verses 39 to 40 and all these now when he's talking about all these he's talking about all these examples that he started with from the beginning from from righteous abel to the prostitute rahab to all these examples that he just clumped together. Essentially, all the people in the Old Testament, all the people up until the time of the New Covenant. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So the author brings us back to the beginning of this chapter, back to verses 1 and 2 where he wrote, let's read it to remind ourselves, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, for by faith, the people of old received their commendation. So the word commended here acts as an inclusio, a, a, a bookend, so to speak. If we didn't have the chapters and the verses here, this is how we would know that this was a, a, a unit, that the author begins this unit with talking about how they are commended, and then he ends this unit by reminding us this is how they are commended. So when we look at this, we see this as, a, as one unit or one um, line of thoughts. So after giving us these many examples of faithful living and what it looks like to live by faith as he defined faith back in verse 1, the author closes by saying these faithful people, these who have gone before us, 
though they were commended by their faith, and though they suffered such great pains, and, and, and though some of them experienced immense blessings, they did not receive what was promised. The faith of all those prior to Christ shared the same ultimate outcome as it relates to the promise of God that the author speaks about. Now quickly, what is this promise? The author is mentioned a few times in Hebrews. Um, it is the final salvation. This is the promised rest of Hebrews 4. This is the eternal inheritance of Hebrews 9. But why is that? Why have they not received it up until this point? Did they not live faithfully enough? Did they not suffer enough? Did, was God's favor not upon them? No, it has actually nothing to do with them specifically. This it more has to do with the will of God. Look at verse 40. Since God or because God. See, God had plans in place. Plans that provided something better for us. A, a something for us that apart from us, the, the people of old, all those who lived prior and, and died prior to the new covenant, they should not be made perfect apart from those of the new covenant. They should not be made perfect apart from the new covenant itself. So, what exactly did God provide for us that is better that they did not have that kept them from receiving the promise? Perfection. God gave us perfection. They did not have perfection. See, all these faithful saints, despite their faith, despite their motivations, did not and could not achieve perfection. They did not receive the promised eternal rest. They could not, having not been perfected. And they did not receive it, for God had ordained from before time that his son, namely Jesus, would be the one to bring the promise to his people. But he would only do so when the time was right, only when it came time to usher in the new covenant, and only when the old covenant had run its course. And it is by Jesus that the saints of old are then perfected. It is by Christ that the saints of old receive the promise. It is by Christ that we and all of God's people are perfected. Thus, the saints of old they have now received the promise. Right? The author's point is saying, they, like, even now they haven't received it. No, they have, but they didn't receive it until, essentially, we, the new covenant, came upon the scene, until Jesus came upon the scene. They didn't receive the promise by the old covenant. It was by the new covenant. It wasn't by the Levitical priesthood. It was by the Melchizedekian priesthood. So why would the, his audience, those of the new covenants, why would they turn back to the ways of the old covenant? Hence, this is the whole argument of, of Hebrews, right? If you just recall what we've been talking about these past months and what the whole letter is about, this is it. This is exactly what it's all about, perfection. But this should cause you to ask the question, and maybe some of you are already wrestling with it, well, what does it mean to be perfected? Does it mean that if, if I'm perfected that I, I no longer sin? Nope. Does it mean that I no longer experience pain, suffering, that I never make mistakes? No. To, to know what it means to be perfected, you simply have to go back one chapter. Chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, Christ, that's he, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
That is, by the blood of Christ, we have been cleansed, we have been forgiven, we have had our consciences perfected. That is, we have had our consciences sanctified. Now, if you're reading this letter, hearing this letter for the full first time, or hearing a sermon for the first time, 1014 is right there in the back of your head. It's not like for us, weeks behind us, but it's like fresh in your mind. So when the author here in verse 40 talks about being perfected, you're automatically thinking, that's sanctification. That's what the Lord has done for me. That is what the author is talking about. And this perfection is what grants us unlimited and unrestrained access to the Father. Something, as the author has already talked about, that the Old Covenant never did and could never do. It's only by the blood of Christ that such access is granted. It's only by the blood of Christ that one is made perfect. For only by the blood of Christ does one receive the promise. So what's the point of all of this? Why is the author telling us this now? I mean, the author has already gone to great lengths throughout the letter to tell us how the new covenant, the priesthood of Christ, the Melchizedekian priesthood, how that is superior and better than the old. So now why does he spend a chapter to tell us about these examples and then end it by telling us that they could not receive the promise without us? What's the point? Is it merely to be a, a history review of the faith? Well, again, consider the context of chapter 11. In chapter 10, the author says, don't throw away your confidence. Don't throw away your trust in the blood of Christ. Don't turn to the old covenant. Don't turn to other things. Continue to trust in Christ and his once for all sufficient sacrifice for all time. Trust in that. Don't shrink back. Don't neglect the gathering. Don't live disobediently. Remain faithful despite the sufferings, the persecutions that you may incur for doing so. Because God takes pleasure in those who are faithful and those who persevere. And he tells, like he says at the end of chapter 10, so that you may preserve your souls. Then the author goes on to give us examples of such faith. He, he do, he, before he does that, he actually tells us what faith is in verse 1, and then in verse 2 he tells us that it's by this kind of faith, this trust that the saints of old were commended. So the focus of chapter 11, it isn't the flaws of these faithful examples. Right? We don't come to chapter 11 and go, Look, it's the flaw of the faith. Consider the flaws of these faithful people. That misses the whole context when you do that. When you talk about Abraham was faithful, and yet he lied. Noah was faithful, and he was a drunk. Look at Samson. He's listed in here, and he struggled with lust, or so forth. Or, or Gideon, he was made brave, but he created an idol uh, for, for the people of Israel to be led astray. So the purpose of chapter 11 isn't to comfort us in our own shortcomings, as if, Look at these faithful. They're in the hall of faith, and they have their sins, their mistakes. That's not the point. You can tell a lot by church how they preach Hebrews 11. If that's what they're doing, they're missing the context. That's not the context of Hebrews 11. The, the, the purpose here is, is to encourage us. It, it's, it's in part through conviction to help us maintain the course of holiness, of faithfulness, or, or for some of us to, to do a better job of being faithful. Hence why the author says all that he does in chapter 12. Right? We're getting to chapter 12 next week, and if you haven't read chapter 12 before, please read it so you can have a heads up for what's to come. 
Like I said, this is the crescendo of the letter. If you thought the first four warnings were heavy, the last isn't going to be any least heavy. If anything, it is heavier because it is given after these four other warnings. It is given after 11 chapters of the author explaining and expounding himself, and he finishes chapter 12. Chapter 12 is the crescendo of the letter for the call to obedience, and the weight of chapter 12 comes from chapter 11. The sting, so to speak, in chapter 12 is chapter 11. And hence why in verse 1 of chapter 12, therefore, because of chapter 11, because of all these examples, because of these great, this great cloud of witnesses, you need to do these things. You need to not grow weary in the faith. You need to consider the kingdom that we have been given. You need to be grateful. Because if they, the saints of old, this great cloud of witnesses, if they endured such things, and they lived such lives, but yet did so without receiving the promise in their lifetimes, and we today, we have received the promise that they have not received, right? They did those things. Abraham, Noah, Samson, David, all of them, the, 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 the uh, women received their sons back, what Elijah, Elisha did, uh, what that family, Maccabees, suffered, what they all did, they did by faith without the promise. Then you and I, we who have the promise, why we walk here today, well, why can't we endure? What excuse do we have? If they persevered with less, why can't we when we have more? What is causing us to turn tail? For the author's audience, the author is essentially asking them, what's causing you to turn back to the old covenant? What's causing you to go back that way to forsake the blood of Christ? What kind of persecution should they not be able to withstand? So, so for us today, we need to ask, what is causing you from living holy lives? What is causing you to turn from righteousness? What is causing you to be so quick at quitting? Do you think you can enter the promised rest by living lives of disobedience? If you say you're part of the new covenant, that is, you claim to be born again, that you have your faith in Jesus Christ, that you're saved by the blood of Christ, then why can't you live faithfully as the saints of old? Remember, the hall of faith, designation of chapter 11, don't let it mislead you as if this is some grant, like these are, these are the exceptions to the rule. Now this is all the saints of old. Why the author says, what, what more can I say? There's not enough time to cover everyone who is faithful because everyone who is faithful lives this way. If you don't live this way, you're not faithful. And if you're not faithful, you perish with the disobedience. You, you perish with those who are walled up in Jericho. If you say you're part of the new covenant, you should be able to live just as faithfully as saints of old, if not better, if it's possible. Are we not greater than they? Think about this. Think about this list, right? If, if you want to take the hall of faith and prop it up, fine. But you need to keep in mind that those who are in the kingdom are greater than the hall of faith. Matthew eleven eleven. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was an Old Testament prophet, a great one, per the words of Jesus. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom, that is, one who is born again, not born of woman, but born again, the one who is least in the kingdom, is greater than John the Baptist. 
So if you want to take the saints of old, prophets of old, and say this is Hall of Faith, yeah, that's great. But every single one of you who's part of the kingdom, who, who is a believer now, who has been born again, no matter how little you think you are or you may be in the kingdom, you are greater than all of them. And why is that? Well, we have the promise. We're perfected. We have access to the Father that they did not have. Thus, we are able to draw near to the Father, and we are able to remain near to him as needed. Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Again, Hebrews 10.19.22. Therefore, brothers, sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, the saints of all, they couldn't do that. And then when they were given the old covenant, they still couldn't do that. Only one man could do that. He could only do it once a year. And he had to follow all kinds of regulations, all kinds of rules in order to even enter into the presence. But we can do so boldly, confidently, anytime we want. In fact, we can just stay there for the, for the whole duration of our life until we actually enter into eternal glory with him. They could not do that. They were unable to do so. We have been cleansed. We have been forgiven. We have been atoned for. We have been sanctified. We have been perfected by his blood. So we have access and power, unlike any other before the new covenant. Beyond these truths, we have the revelation of Christ. We have the New Testament. We have an empty tomb. We have the sign of Jonah that death has been defeated. In Matthew 11, after Jesus talks about how great John the Baptist is and how everyone in the kingdom is greater than he, John the Baptist then, as like a good Old Testament prophet, asks Jesus, who are you? Are you really the Messiah? He wants confirmation because he, he didn't see it. He didn't get to see the resurrection. But you and I, we know who the Messiah was. Abraham didn't know who the Messiah was. David didn't know who the Messiah was. None of the prophets of old knew who the Messiah was. But we have been blessed with such knowledge. And because of all of this, because we have the resurrection, because we have the crucifixion, because we have Christ, and we're living in this age, we have God himself dwelling within us. John 16, 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. This is Jesus talking. It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, the comforter, that's the spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In other words, when he goes to the right hand of the Father, where he is now, he will send the spirit. Ephesians 1, 13, 14, Paul says, In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He's our guarantee of our inheritance because we have been perfected. We have been sanctified by the once-for-all-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And when, when the author of Hebrews talks about the sacrifice of Christ being for all time, it, it, he means for the saints of old as well. It's for all time, us and them. Hence why he is able to say at the end of chapter 11, they should not be perfected without us. It is not that we ourselves, that we do something to perfect them. 
No, it's, it's because of the work of Christ. And we are who we are because of Christ. And because we exist, they thus are perfected. It's all about the new covenant. So, what sin can ensnare you against your will? What harm can this world create upon you to cause you to forsake your Savior? Saints of old were faithful, and they don't have what you have. What pain is too much for the glory that awaits you in eternity? What is death but a threshold into eternal blessedness? What pearl in this world has so captivated your gaze to draw your eyes from the infinite majesty of God? Has evil, has pain so clouded your vision that you can no longer see the Son of God, the Son of Man, bleeding on the cross for you? Wipe your eyes, repent of your sin, and then stand upon the love of God that was poured out for you on Calvary. Look to Christ. This is where the author goes. Very next verse, verse 1, verse 2. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, lay aside anything that might hinder your walk, anything that might cause you not to see Christ. Consider him, run the race, be faithful. We must submit to Christ, we must trust Christ, and we must persevere in Christ. Yield not to the devil, nor to your flesh. Don't grow weary in the midst of the fight. Don't fall asleep in the middle of a long, long night. Be awake. By faith endure, by faith live, by faith die. This is the way, and this is how it's been marked by the word of God and the many, many faithful saints going all the way back to Ahab, Abel, who have gone before us. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for perfecting us, even though clearly it does not perfect our tongues or how we live. But Father, you have made a way for us that we could come into your presence, that we may receive grace, we may find mercy, we may get that help that we need in times of, times of need. So help us to live faithful lives, recognizing that faithful life is not measured by perfect living, but faithful life is, is measured by whom we trust and how we trust him. So, Father, we ask that you help us to trust your Son, that you help us to trust you and the Spirit, that we won't forsake the blood of Christ, that we won't turn to other things, that we would trust our salvation, our everlasting life, the eternal gift of, of, of life that you've given us completely and wholly into his hands. And help us to live lives that reflect that truth, that reality. Help us to be faithful in all things. Give us discerning minds. Help us to be willing to cut out the idols in our lives, to cut out things that may hinder us from being faithful, things that might tempt us to compromise, things that might allow us or, or, or lead us to tolerating sins um, that we ought not to. Father, help us to, to be bold in our faith, and not only in how we live, but help us to be bold in our faith to others. Help us to walk in community with one another. Help us to keep one another um, in our prayers, 
May we pray for one another. May we encourage one another. May we correct one another, not out of pride, Father, but out of love uh, for the sake of, of preserving their souls and for the sake of your glory. Father, we thank you that you've given us this word. We thank you that you are patient with us. We thank you that every day, every moment is a moment, an opportunity for us to repent, to confess our sins, and to walk anew in the light. May we know this grace. May we taste it. May you pour this truth into our souls and may it overflow and be a blessing to others. Father, in this light, we ask that you would bless the table before us, that you bless the bread and the cup, that as before we come to the table, that we would confess sin, that we would repent of sins, that we would ask for the help and for the forgiveness that we need in order to do so, and then that we would come to the table by, the, by your grace and, and by the Spirit to receive the bread and the cup and to be encouraged by the work that your Son has accomplished for us on the cross. And that we would be encouraged as we go out from here, being reminded that we are saints, that we are redeemed, that we have been perfected, that we have been sanctified for all time by the blood. So, Father, help us to live holy lives until your Son returns or until you call us home. We ask all these things, Father, and the many things that are unspoken, the many things that you know are in our lives, we give them all to you, Father, and to your sovereign hand for your glory, so that many people will know your name, and that the name of Christ will be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And we ask this by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.